you for our day. We uh, know this is a day that the Lord has made, and we rejoice and we're glad in it, Lord. And we thank you for your word, that you've not left us in darkness like the pagans, but you've given us regeneration, your spirit and your word, to know who you are. We pray, Heavenly Father, as we look at your word about the throne room, again, we would set our minds on things above, not on the things of this earth. We pray that you would accomplish that through us and for us, for the sake of your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As you can see, we're in Revelation 4. This is our third installment. We'll be ending that today, and the next time we'll be getting into Revelation chapter 5. There's three things that I want to lay out for you in the few verses that we're going to be covering. Number one, the four living creatures that we're going to be looking at, which are these four angelic beings, we're going to see that they are absolutely essential I shouldn't say essential, but God chooses to use them to administer his justice upon his creation. So we'll see that they're used by God to administer justice as well as to worship him. Second, we're going to see that God's right to rule. Oops, someone fell over. (laughs) I know, I know. (laughs) I just wanted to get that on tape. It sounds interesting when somebody fell over. Uh, Second, God's right to rule in the book of Revelation is going to be proven by the fact that he is the creator of all things, and therefore he deserves all glory, honor, and power. Third, I'm going to give you an introduction into Revelation chapter 5, where we are going to introduce a concept called the kinsman redeemer. And I'm going to make the claim that Jesus Christ functions like this grand Goel, or kinsman redeemer, who is going to redeem what the usurper Satan has attempted to steal away, namely God's creation and his right to rule over creation. So that's where we're going to be going here today. I apologize last week. I've really had some sinus problems, but I think I'm, I'm getting better. So don't mind me. I'll still be taking candy here and there, but I'm, I'm quite a bit better this week, I think. So by God's grace, I won't have to bolt on you anymore (laughs) so let's begin though by looking at these four living creatures in revelation 4 6 through 7 it says and before the throne there was something like a sea of glass like crystal and in the center and around the throne four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind now let's just stop there for a moment remind ourselves that we had looked at the sea of glass last week And we had witnessed how the sea of glass represented God's rule, that he reigns over the sea and therefore all of creation. Well, now we're going to be focusing on these four living creatures, okay? And these are angelic beings. It goes on to say that the first living creature was like a lion, the second creature like an ox, the third creature had a face like a man, like a man's, and the fourth creature looked like an eagle flying. Now, the first thing I want you to understand with these four living creatures is notice that they have eyes that are all around, okay, in the front and behind. The imagery there is that these creatures are around God's throne and nothing escapes their notice or their purview in their sphere of responsibility. So again, these are created beings, but it shows that God's throne is not approachable uh, unbeknownst. It's the idea that He is transcendent and that even the beings around him have the superior knowledge and understanding from the rest of creation. Now, the four living creatures, of course, also links us back to Ezekiel chapter 1, 
verses 6 through 10, okay, where Ezekiel saw four living creatures as well. Now, here's the difference. The four living creatures that Ezekiel saw, each of them had four faces, okay? The face of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. Here, in Revelation, John sees four creatures, and they each have one face. So one creature would have the face of a lion, one of an ox, one of a man, one of an eagle. How do we reconcile that? I don't know, okay? I would assume they're seeing something obviously very similar, but they see it a little differently. That's all I can say. I don't know how to reconcile it. Now, with that, what do these represent? Well, first of all, the lion is perhaps the most noble of all of the wild animals. It is known as the king of the jungle, and it's, of course, renowned for its prowess, right? Its fighting prowess. Well, the ox, of course, is kind of the pinnacle of the domesticated animals. It's renowned for its power and its ability to serve. Of course, man is the wisest, well, (laughs) we'd like to think so anyway, right? Of all of God's creation, we are made in God's image. And of course, the eagle is the swiftest. And so the idea that these angelic beings then really reflect the greatest or the epitome of God's creation. And so it's this idea that even these angelic beings that surround God's throne are integral to the administration of justice within that creation. So these living beings do two primary things. First of all, as angels, they worship God day and night. Second, they administer justice, as you will see in Revelation chapter 6. In fact, there's a wonderful quote. If anyone ever has an opportunity to get one commentary on the book of Revelation, there's a man that teaches at Master's Seminary who I just think does a bang-up job. In fact, we have some of his articles on our website. His name is Robert Thomas. And I'm guessing he's got to be, he's got to be at least in his late 80s now. But he does a wonderful job. Robert Thomas writes a commentary in the book of Revelation, two-volume set by Moody Press. Listen to what he says about these four angelic creatures. He says, quote, The relation of these four angelic creatures to the rest of creation is reflected in the song in Revelation 4, 9 through 11. We'll be seeing that this morning. And chapter 15, verse 7. The related living beings in Ezekiel symbolize worldwide power which upholds and pervades while it transcends creation. So notice it's imminent and yet it transcends. He says, quote, the same idea is present here. Their distinction from creation in Revelation 5.13 will be noted, but it is possible for them as angelic beings to be reminders of the divine imminence in nature and still maintain their distinction from the created world. And so, again, I think that's neat. Here we have these four living beings that are integral to pouring out justice upon the creation, but yet they're seen in a way as distinct from the rest of creation. Okay, so again, that reflects God's majesty. Again, they're created beings. God alone is the one who is uniquely different and holy. But even these angelic beings, because of their amazing prowess, do reflect his glory in the throne room. I want you to see how they are used in the administration of justice. So I'm going to fast forward here to Revelation 6. We'll be coming to this, obviously, at some point soon in our studies. Revelation 6, here's the first seal that's opened up. And I want you to see how the four living creatures are used by God as a means by which he pours out 
his wrath and justice upon the world. Revelation 6, 1 through 2, it says, Then I saw when the Lamb... Now, who's the Lamb? Well, of course, that's Jesus, isn't it? He's the one worthy of opening the seals. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come. I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Now, the one that comes out, I believe, is the Antichrist, who's going out there to conquer. So, at the inception here of the 70th week of Daniel, which is what the first seal is, I believe, is the pouring out of God's wrath. And who is used to institute it? Well, one of the four living creatures at the bequest of God. Okay? Now, notice what does this angel say to draw the Antichrist out? He says, come. And this is a form of erkamai, which is in the imperative. Now, the significance of that is how many here used to watch boxing? When I was a kid, my dad and I would always watch boxing on ABC, Wild World of Sports, and we just loved it. Now, I don't even know who boxers are because it's always on pay-per-view, and I never have, I don't want to spend the money on that. So, but do you guys remember there was a guy who would say, let's get ready to rumble. Remember that? And it's so ingrained in our mind. If you hear that right away, you think boxing right, or maybe all-star wrestling, but it's, it's boxing. Well, this term come would have that same association in the culture of the day because it was associated with the arena and the stadium where the gladiator would be called out with the same imperative or the charioteer. And so they would be called out to battle or to the games with the same come. Yeah, Dan. Hold on a second. Hold on. <laughs> Is that the same word that Jesus used to call Lazarus out of the tomb? You know, I'd have to look. I bet it is. It's probably similar. Bob? I'll be looking it up. Okay, good. Yeah, it probably is. Yeah, he says, Lazarus, come forth, right? Um, We'll have to find out. But yeah, so anyway, this is something in the culture that if you were reading this in the original audience, you would say, oh, well, that sounds like the gladiator games. And yet it's not the gladiator games. It's what? It's called to wrath. Okay, the Antichrist comes first. Now, The second living creature, we'll see this when we get to it, at the second seal, he says the same thing, come. And all of a sudden, peace is taken away from the world and warfare comes. Now, let me just stop there. Remember in 1 Thessalonians 5, the day of the Lord comes when? Well, when they're saying peace and safety. Then sudden destruction comes upon them. All right? Well, you're not going to be saying peace and safety when warfare comes. So we know that wrath begins where? Well, in the opening seals here in Revelation chapter 6. Yeah, Bob, what is it? The Lazarus narrative has different words. Does it? Okay. But there's synonyms. Synonyms, yeah. The Bible uses a lot of synonyms, so don't let that throw you. But yeah, yeah. Thanks, it's a good question. Now, the third seal, again, the third creature says in Revelation 6, 5 through 6, come, and what comes is famine. And then, of course, the fourth living creature would call out come and then you have a combination sword famine pestilence and wild beasts so again that just shows us that these living creatures are being used by god to administer justice upon his creation but not only that we also see that they're called to worship god in fact they do it 
day and night. It says, Revelation 4.8, it says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Now, notice in this passage, we have this reference to these beings having six wings. And so being that they have six wings, this ties us back to Isaiah 6, where remember the prophet Isaiah is being called for his ministry, and he also sees sees the same throne room, and he sees the same creatures. Notice the similarities. Isaiah 6, verses 2 through 3, this is Isaiah saying this. He said, this is what he saw in the throne room. He says, Seraphim stood above him, that's above God, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to the another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, notice here in the Isaiah 6-2 passage, Isaiah calls these angels seraphim. All right. Now, in Ezekiel, if they're the same beings, they're called cherubim. Now, which is it? Is it cherubim or is it seraphim? I think we can say yes. I think it's maybe both. Now, here's why. Seraphim literally means a burning one. Okay, in fact, it's used of the serpents in Numbers chapter 21. Okay, now, seraphim, meaning burning one, was something that I think Isaiah saw. He saw these angelic beings as those who were burning ones. In fact, he experienced it. Remember Isaiah says, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. What does the angel do to, so that Isaiah can be in the presence of God, or at least even see the throne room in his vision? He gives him coal, and he burns him, as it were. He purges his sin. Okay, And so Isaiah not only sees them as burning ones, in a sense he experiences it as well. Now, let me talk about how to reconcile this idea that in Ezekiel, these creatures have four wings, and in Isaiah, in John, in Revelation, they have six wings. Here may be a possibility. What's interesting is notice in the Isaiah account, it talks about how they use their wings. Notice it says, with two they covered their face, two they covered their feet. Now, I don't mean to be too lewd here, but in the book of Isaiah, in chapter 7, verse 20, Feet is a euphemism for private body parts, okay? And that's a possibility here. And so perhaps Ezekiel just doesn't want to bring attention to it. The reason I mention that is perhaps they really are seeing the same thing. Let's say you, um, as an eyewitness to an accident, you say, well, I saw a blue car get cra- you know, crash. Well, somebody else says, well, I saw a blue and a yellow car. Does that mean that you have a contradiction? No. It would be a contradiction to say that you have a blue car and not a blue car at the same time in the same relationship, but you can focus on different elements of the crime scene, right? In the same way, perhaps, Ezekiel just didn't focus on the other set of wings. That's all I'm saying. Is, and the reason why is perhaps for propriety's sake. Just a theory, I don't know. I'm trying to reconcile because it seems like, wait, these creatures are the same, and yet we see small differences in them, okay? Now, the other thing I want to point out here is notice the threefold repetition. Holy, holy, holy. 
that is the, if you're going to say there's, this is one thing that describes who God is, there it is. God is holy. Now, in Hebrew, there's no word for the superlative. In English, we can say something's holy, it's holier, or the superlative would be holiest. They don't have that in Hebrew. So the only way to get that thought across is through repetition. So holy, holy, holy means God is the holiest. Kadosh, kadosh, kadosh. That's how it would sound. All right. Now, what does it mean? Again, it means primarily that God is set apart, that he is different from everything within this fallen creation. Okay. So in God's holiness, I break it into two parts. First of all, what I would call his ontological difference. That is, God in his very being is different than the rest of creation. Why? Well, because he's a non-contingent eternal being. Everything else in creation is contingent upon the creator. So in God's very essence, he's different because he's eternal. All right? Now, does God hold it against us because you and I are not eternal? No. In fact, there are many attributes, what we call the incommunicable attributes of God, that he alone has. His aseity, his omnipotence, his omnipresence. God does not hold that against us, that you and I do not have those things. He created us other than that. But the second aspect of holiness has to do with his moral different, his being morally different than the creation. That's where you and I are on the hook God is not tainted by sin, and in fact, God is the standard of what sin is and what is good, holy, righteous, and noble, okay? You and I fall short of that standard, and so it's in that second arena of holiness, the idea that God is different in morality, that you and I are in big trouble, and that's why you and I cannot be in his presence. So what does Jesus Christ do for us? He gives us what we call the great transaction. Jesus takes away our sin on the cross. He is the payment for it. So you and I, God must have payment paid for the insult against his holiness. In Jesus Christ, it's met. In Jesus Christ, our sins are removed as far away as the east is from the west. However, that just means our sins have been removed. That's only half the equation. But this Jesus also, through his perfect life, can clothe us in his righteousness. So now we're given his holiness, as it were, by faith. That's the positive side of the transaction. And how does it happen? By faith alone. So when God sees us, he sees the Son. And now we are with him, this Christ who is holy, 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 And so just as that angel had prefigured it by purging the sins from Isaiah, you and I are ultimately purged from our sins by the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the only way that we can be in the presence of this God. Okay, he is the Holy One. Now, what's interesting is, again, at the root of holiness is this idea of being different, this idea of being unique from the creation. What I want you to see is that Satan challenges this. Satan is challenging God's unique ability to be the ruler of all creation. He's going to challenge God's holiness. I want you to see how he does it. 
Bob and I were talking this week about these passages, and he's going to be preaching. And I always marvel about how our passages dovetail. He's teaching in Colossians 2.15, and he had talked about Satan. And the reason why our themes so often mingle is because the Bible speaks with one voice. Although we have 66 books written by many different authors, there's ultimately only one author, that is God. And so you're going to see a lot of similar themes later that Bob is going to be talking about. Notice in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, as I read this, the debate in this passage is about who is this passage speaking of? Is it speaking of the king of Babylon or is it speaking of Satan? Okay? And my answer to that, I'll just put it up front, is yes. (laughs) We don't have to choose because it's Satan using the king of Babylon. So ultimately, the source behind King of Babylon, I think, is Satan. I'll lay that case out, but let me read it. Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 14, it says, How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. Now I'm going to come back to that. It's a very significant phrase. Verse 14, he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Now, we just saw in Revelation 4 and Isaiah 6 that God is holy, holy, holy. There is none like him. And yet the claim here, whoever's making it, is saying they're going to be like him. Now we have a contradiction because no one's like Yahweh. He has declared that through his prophets and through his word. And yet whoever's making this boast, whether it be the king of Babylon or Satan, they're claiming that they can be like God. And so right away we should be, it should be abhorrent to us. That's the idea. Okay? Now, here's my take on it. Again, I think this is the king of Babylon first and foremost but it's Satan speaking through him, okay? So, in other words, the original context, yes, Babylon, the king of Babylon, certainly um, at play here, but the ultimate source behind him is Satan. So we don't have to choose whether it's the king of Babylon because who stands behind the king of Babylon? Satan himself. And I'll make that case. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 14, verses 3 through 4. Isaiah 14, verses 3 through 4. What I'm showing you here is the context of this passage. I want you to see that the king of Babylon is referred to. Isaiah 14, verses 3 through 4. Now, look, um, well, I'll set the stage here in a minute, but Isaiah 14, verses 3 through 4, it says, And it will be in the day when Yahweh gives you rest from your pain and turmoil, and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon and say how the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. Okay, so let's stop there. Notice the king of Babylon is explicitly mentioned. So we can't run roughshod over that. The author is telling us that this is about the king of Babylon. However, this is something very interesting. Notice in verse 4, Isaiah is speaking for the Lord, and he says, In that day when you're rescued from the hand of the Babylonians, you're going to take up this taunt. Now, the term taunt in Hebrew is the noun mashal. 
Mashal, use it five times, you own the term. Mashal. And notice even in your English versions, you'll see that it sometimes they'll have a note next to your, the term for taunt. It'll say proverb. And it literally is best understood as a proverb that renders the inner meaning or the inner truth of something. In fact, one of my favorite scholars in the book of Isaiah is an Englishman named J. Alec Motyer. Listen to what he says about how he would render the same phrase in verse 4. He would render it this way, quote, he would say, you will bring to light, instead of you will make a taunt, you will bring to light the inner truth about the king of Babylon. He thinks that's how mashal should really be understood. And so the idea then is who ultimately is speaking through the king of Babylon? It's Satan. Now, it's not that we're just in, you know, trying to shoehorn that in. The context, I think, demands it. Now, here's why. In the beginning of Isaiah 13, remember Isaiah 13, verses 1 through 16. I taught this a couple of years ago. It's all about Babylon globally that'll be thrown down and destroyed in the day of the Lord. So certainly Babylon represents something more than the nation of the Chaldeans under Nebuchadnezzar, right? It's going to be a worldwide force that tries to overcome God and usurp his control. And so in Isaiah 13, verses 1 through 16, it's going to be all thrown down, universal Babylon. And so ultimately, who's behind that? Well, Satan, of course, is. Well, then in the rest of the chapter 13, oh, by the way, before I move on to the rest of chapter 13, remember that's where we get our reference to Odin, Isaiah 13, 8, which is the labor pains. That's associated with what? The day of the Lord. That's what Jesus is referring to in what? The Olivet Discourse. So we know this is eschatological. We know it's worldwide. It's not just the local Babylonian nation. Well, then what happens in the rest of the chapter 13 of Isaiah is God gives a foreshadowing or a down payment in Isaiah's day so that the reader can be absolutely assured that, yes, God will one day rid Babylon globally. He gives the short-term prediction in the rest of Isaiah 13 that the Babylonians would fall one day to the Medo-Persian Empire. And lo and behold, that happens. The Medo-Persian Empire destroys them. We see that in 539 B.C., okay, accurately predicted hundreds of years in advance by the prophet Isaiah. And that is a down payment that, yes, God's good for it. When it comes to universal Babylon, incited by Satan himself, that will one day be thrown down in the day of the Lord. How do you know that? Because God takes care of the near-term Babylon in Isaiah's day. Does that make sense? Yeah, Dan. Um, do you think... Uh, like in uh, Revelation 18, that the Babylon, the actual city of Babylon, will be rebuilt. Like I've heard some Bible prophecy teachers think that that's going to happen, that the actual city of Babylon will be rebuilt in Iraq, I believe. Yeah, you know, I don't know if it will be that particular city, um, but there will be a Babylon, and I believe it will be on the Euphrates. In other words, I'm not saying it's on that exact location, but it very well could be. I think it does. I think the... uh, there are some people who think that Babylon is referenced to Jerusalem, and I'll be discussing that when we get to it, that there's a reason why that's not such a nutty idea, but I'll be showing you clear evidences from Scripture as to why it can't be. And there's references to the Euphrates, so we have to take it literally. I think it literally will be rebuilt on the Euphrates, but I, I can't say it's on the exact location where they 
tear down the existing structures. I don't know, but it will be in close proximity, if nothing else. Yeah, I do. I do believe that. Yep. So yeah, and thank you for bringing that up, Dan, because what we see in the book of Revelation is the, the fulfillment of what was promised in Isaiah 13. Babylon is what humans do, incited by Satan, by works. Yeah, Steve. Uh, Saddam Hussein, before he died, was beginning to rebuild Babylon. That's right. So, you know, I, know I, I see that as part of prophecy coming true, that it is going to be rebuilt. Thank you, and, Steve. Yeah, exactly. He is the, one of the ones that began building. I, I understand it's been like 14 years that he, he began building it before he, was, he, before he died. That's a great point. Yeah, he really loved Babylon. In fact, they had Russian T-72 tanks, and the T-72 tanks, he had uh, one of the divisions that ran them were called the Lions of Babylon. So it was Babylon language all over the place. You're absolutely right. And he saw himself as kind of a new Nebuchadnezzar, yeah. One more thing. I, that Isaiah uh, passage that you have up, is I've heard that the Reformers used uh, that passage uh, in connection with the papacy, and I don't, I don't know what you think of that. Um, yeah, um, yeah. Because, Bob, because of the fact yeah. that they, you know, the title of the pope, one of the titles is Holy Father, and some of the blasphemous titles that he takes um, really connect with that with that passage. Yeah, you know what? I'll let Bob um, handle that. I'll just say as he, the mic's going to him. You know, in First John, we see that there's going to be many antichrists have already come, and then there's going to be the Antichrist. And so I would certainly say that I went, that, that's not a valid interpretation. Um, um, but, yeah, go ahead. I, I just, I read Luther every week just yeah. after I get my other work done, and I usually, using Logos, I do a word search. I just, this week, looked up Antichrist, and there were so many references to it. But Luther did argue that the Pope was the Antichrist. Yeah. But his reasoning was from Thessalonians, where the man of lawlessness sets himself up in the temple, okay, and opposes everything else. Yeah. So his reasoning was the, po- the temple is the church, and, and, and the pope set himself up in the church as the ultimate power. Therefore... That's a fulfillment of the passage of Thessalonians, and the Pope is the Antichrist. And he said that many different times. Now, I'm not saying his understanding of Thessalonians is correct, but the fact that the Pope opposed the gospel was what really motivated Luther to call him the Antichrist, because on every turn, he opposed the gospel. Yeah, amen. Yeah, and again, that ties into this idea that there's many antichrists that have come into the world, but then there is a future antichrist that's coming. Um, so what I would say is this passage has a historical referent. I always think of, when you think of passages like this, think of the near and the far. In Isaiah's day, the near term, you have a real Babylon that exists, and they threaten God's people and his promises. And God is going to throw that down. They're incited by Satan. Why? If you wipe out Israel, what happens to God's plan? All done. Okay? God's faithful in Isaiah's day, but he's also going to be faithful in the future day of the Lord. That's the far. So the near and the far. The near term, Isaiah's day, there's a Babylon who threatens God's people. God promises the Medo-Persians will take care of you, he says in Isaiah 13. But that's a down payment of what God will do in the future. As Bob mentioned, in Second Thessalonians, there's going to be this Antichrist 
literally who sets himself up in a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. And he will be the epitome of all that we read about, incited by Satan, who tries to overthrow the rule of God. He is the beast that comes out of Revelation 13, out of the sea, the same sea that God is shown as sovereign over that we looked at last week. And so Babylon is rebuilt. And what happens in Revelation 18? Babylon, the city, is thrown down. And that's the one that was being predicted in the first verses, again, of Isaiah 13, verses 1 through 16. Yep. So the near and the far, that's how we should think of, I think, of prophecy like that. Now, in the meantime, in history, we have many foreshadowings. Um, Antiochus Epiphanes IV was a Seleucid ruler who desecrated the temple. He's a foreshadowing of the Antichrist. In fact, he's alluded to in the book of Daniel. But was he the Antichrist? No. Um, the Pope is, a sense, an Antichrist-like figure. But is he the Antichrist? No. But he opposes the gospel, so he's in this long, continuous line that one day will culminate in the Antichrist. So does that help? Yeah. Yeah, but again, when we're looking at these passages, we always want to know what it meant, uh, what was the original intent of the author. And so there's a near term, but there's also an intended far term uh, theme that's given to us by the author Isaiah himself. And he shows us that in the language. He talks about the whole earth being judged in the opening verses of Isaiah 13. Yep. Now, what's interesting is in Isaiah 24, 10, there's also a reference to a city of chaos. And that city of chaos is going to be thrown down and destroyed. And that city, of course, is a reference to Babylon. Now, again, in Revelation 18, we see that fulfilled. Now, who stands behind that? Well, Satan does. Satan is the one who's behind the city of chaos. Now, the other thing I want to mention here is think about Ephesians 6, 1 through, I'm sorry, Ephesians 6, 12. Turn your Bibles there for just a moment. While you're turning there, by the way, to Ephesians 6.12, let me just throw this passage up here, Genesis 3.5. I want you to see that not only does Satan try to usurp God's holiness and his uniqueness, but he incites mankind to do the same. In the Garden of Eden, this is what Satan says to Eve. For God knows, remember, he wants her to eat of the forbidden fruit. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So not only does Satan want to usurp the uniqueness of God, his holy, holy, holiness, but he's inciting mankind to do the same, and we bought into it. Uh, As Bob has mentioned many times, the most powerful position in all of creation is to be the lawgiver, to know the difference between good and evil for yourself, rather than having to rely upon what the God of heaven declares. Okay, and that's what Adam and Eve and all of us have succumbed to. When we sin... We're declaring for ourselves what's good and what's right and what's evil. We have become our own lawgiver. And we're trying to usurp, just like Satan did, the holiness of God. Okay, in Christ, that's rectified through faith alone in him. All right? Now, notice in Ephesians 6, 12, Paul says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Okay, so the point is behind these nations and behind the king stands these demonic beings. And we see that all over scripture. Remember in Daniel 10, Gabriel 
was going to come and give a response to Daniel who was praying. And what does he say? He says, well, I would have been here sooner. I'm paraphrasing, but I was restrained by the prince of Persia. Now, he's not talking about a literal physical prince, but he's talking about a demonic being who was connected to the land of Persia. We see the same thing in Deuteronomy 32. All the nations were given to the demonic beings. One nation alone, it says, in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 10, belonged to Yahweh. That was Israel. Israel, Bob's laid this out, Acts 7, what did they want? They wanted to be under the demons again. So they left Yahweh's plan, which is in the Messiah, and they deliberately placed themselves in rebellion under the demonic realm. In the 70th week of Daniel, by the end of it, God wrestles them back, and they become his unique nation again. Okay, so those are the themes that I think we have to see. So ultimately, Satan is wanting to challenge God and his right to rule. But as we see here in this passage, God has the right to rule. Why? Because he's the only creator, and therefore he alone is the one who is holy, holy, holy. That's what we see here in verses 9 through 11. It says, And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sit on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Now, let me stop there. That power... And dunamis is where you and I would get our term in uh, English for dynamite. And I think it's directly associated with God's power in that it's his right to rule, especially in the context here when he's going to be taking possession of the earth in Revelation chapter 5. So the point is God is going to receive glory, honor, and power. All right, now, why is he worthy of those things? Well, We have a causal for, it's hati in the Greek. Notice the for, that shows us the cause. Why is God worthy of these things? He says, for you created all things, (laughs) okay? He's the creator. He's the creator of all things. And of course, therefore, he's worthy of these things. And he says, and because of your will, they existed and were created. Think about, remember in Romans chapter 9, Paul talks about those who had been chosen as vessels of honor, and those who had been chosen as vessels of destruction. And he presupposes the objection. In fact, he says this in Romans 9.20. Um, well, I'm sorry, I didn't have it written out here. But the objection is, hey, Lord, why did you make me this way? And then Paul gives the answer. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? What's the point? The point is the molder has all authority and power. Notice, this is the pinnacle, I think, of the entire Bible, in a sense, in that, in, in, I'm sorry, in Romans 9, Paul is pulling back the curtain to let us see how God operates, right? And at the end of the day, when he defends God as to why he chose some for salvation and others for damnation, he says he's the creator, It's his sandbox, and he can do with what he pleases in his own sandbox. Who's going to tell? Well, you can't do that with your sandbox. No, we can't say it. So at the end of the day, Paul appeals to the fact that God is creator and lets it sit. Therefore, God has all rule and authority and power. Yeah, Peter. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's all thrown down because he's, he's the creator. Yeah. It's, it's what, you know, it's funny as um, the fairness question is really a denial of reality. It's the way it is. <laughs> so instead of thinking of fairness, we have to say, well, that's the way it is, right? It's also, if we're going to go by fairness, we'd have to say it's fair that God would send us all to hell. But yet, God was merciful, which you and I didn't deserve, and he chose to save us before the foundation of the world, right? Amen. Yeah, so now what I want you to see is, notice here, God has the right to rule because the, he's the creator of all things. He has all power, honor, and glory. But I want you to see how Satan has affected the unregenerate. These are unbelievers in Romans 1.25. Paul says they, and the they there are unbelievers. Now, what did they do? Now, these are all unbelievers, left to their own devices, given over to a depraved mind. He says, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what? The creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That's trying to usurp God's holiness. And it, that's what Satan was trying to do with humanity. Satan is trying to usurp God's holiness and his right to rule. And mankind has done the same thing. The unregenerate man worships and serves the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. Let's take every single false religion or cult. Every single false religion and cult has a different God than the one that actually exists. Every single false religion relies upon works, a form of works. Now, what that's saying is, Lord in heaven, you must accept me because of my works to be in your presence. Will the actual God who exists be able to do that? No. Why? Because he is holy and we are not. And so do you see when people claim that God will do that, what are they claiming? They're claiming a different God than exists, a God of their own creation. And so they're worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator who's forever praised. And so every single, every single false religion or cult that has a different Christ, a different God, a different spirit, and a different gospel is idolatry. And so when we're calling people to repent, remember in Mark 1, 14 through 15, Jesus, and he begins his ministry, he says, repent and believe the gospel. This idea of repentance, metanoeo, means to turn from that idolatry first and foremost. So the whole world is going towards this false God that they've created. And what God is saying is repent and turn from that and turn to the God that actually exists on his terms, which is faith alone in Christ alone. That's the core of repentance. Now, associated with that, is also turning from sin because sin is directly rooted in the scriptures to idolatry. Yeah, Tom. Uh, two, two comments. Uh, I think the foundation of environmentalism is basically that. Which well is, said. Uh, you know, and then the second thing, it seems like the cosmic humanism or just really the... Uh, you know, the thought process of becoming gods ourself yeah. as opposed to, I mean, that's uh, most of your Eastern religions are getting to the point where we can work our way to that. Uh, yeah. it, is that what you're talking exactly about? Exactly right. Okay. That's exactly right. And that's what Babylon is about. This idea of building the, the kingdom of God here and now. Think of Marxism. Marxism, that they, that's a religion that murdered more people than any other religion ever. You know, 70 million alone and the Chinese, I guess, uh, uh, Stalin, 35 to 40 million. Um, we look at the um, 
Killing Fields, remember the movie, The Killing Fields with the Karim Rouge? They, um, what, 1.7, 2 million at least? So millions of people are murdered in this false religion. And what are they teaching? They're teaching that man builds utopia. Government is God, we'll do it. And the United States is deadlocked in a battle in the Cold War against the Soviet Union that is promoting that. Now, I'm not saying we're a Christian nation. We don't have a covenant with God. But many of our people, at least for many years, held to at least a semi-biblical worldview enough where we would say, no, we know perfection doesn't come through human effort. Perfection comes when Christ comes. And so we were mortal enemies during the Cold War with the Soviet Union that teaches basically we're going to build Babylon. And so what I see is in our milieu today, we look at a president who wants to build Babylon. We'll do it through government being bigger. Government is God. Um, We have to get rid of our religion and our guns, so to speak, right? We can't restrain evil because they're the ones through human effort that will build uh, build the swords into the plowshares and the spears into the pruning hooks, right? But yes, there's this cosmic Christ idea. Shirley MacLaine, I am God. Remember, she's crying that out on the seashore. And uh, that's some kind of God, isn't she, that forgot that she was God, right? So she's having to remind herself that she's God. But yeah, so yeah, there's all sorts of that in our culture today, whether it's Marxism or whether it's more on the mystical side in the New Age movement. The long to usurp God's authority is what ends up leading to Babylon. And we're seeing it in spades today. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, so Satan, again, is the usurper here who is trying to use the Antichrist. Where does the Antichrist come from? He comes from the sea. What chapter 5, now I'm going to introduce to you chapter 5 here. Chapter 5 of Revelation is all about God taking possession of his creation through his Redeemer, Jesus Christ. He is going to throw down the usurper. I want you to turn your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation 5, verses 1 through 3. Again, Revelation 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, what I want you to see here as we read Revelation 5, 1 through 3, what's very prominent in this passage is, of course, the Lamb. Now, that's not in the first three verses, but later he's going to be very prominent. But what's very prominent in the opening three verses is the seven-sealed book or scroll, okay? And what I'm going to show you is this serves much like a title deed does for the earth. It's a book of wrath that God pours out, and after he pours it out, all of creation is his, okay? Revelation 5, 1 through 3, it says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. So notice this book has seven seals and no one can open it up. And my claim is that the sealed book serves as the book of wrath whereby God takes possession of the earth. So think of two imageries coming together in this book that has seven seals on it. It's like a scroll. That seven seals are on it, so no one can open it except who? The Lamb, the Jesus. There's two elements that come together. One, it's a book of wrath, that as it's opened up, the wrath is poured out. But when the wrath is expended, all of creation belongs to God, and so therefore it also serves as a title deed. Now, I want you to understand where this title deed imagery comes from. Remember I had mentioned earlier 
in the culture of our day, if someone said, let's get ready to rumble, you would say, oh, boxing's going to happen. And I said, in the same way, if you heard the term come in the culture of the day, you would think of a gladiator being called out. Well, if you in that culture, when John wrote this in the Roman Empire, heard about a seven-sealed book, immediately you would think of a title deed or a will. Okay, immediately that's what would come to mind. Now, let me give you some evidence of that. First of all, jot this passage down in Jeremiah 32.10. We know in the culture of Jeremiah's day, now this is obviously anachronistic in that it predates the writing of the book of Revelation by 500 years. But in Jeremiah 32.10, Jeremiah ends up buying, he functions as a goel, a redeemer, in that he buys land from his cousin Hamanel. Now, here's what's so interesting. His cousin Hamanel sells Jeremiah a piece of land in Anatoth. Now, the reason that's significant is because Anatoth was already captured by the Babylonians. So this rascal cousin of Jeremiah the prophet says, hey, you are the Goel. Will you redeem this land that's already taken captive by the Babylonians? Well, that sounds like a great prophet plan, right? Get, you know, buy land that's already been taken over by the enemy. God tells Jeremiah to buy it. And he ends up using this very title deed, seven-sealed scroll. When the reason why God wants him to buy it and put it in the seven-sealed scroll is because God is using it as an object lesson that although all seems lost to the enemy of Babylon, God one day is going to restore their fortunes. That's what it's a symbol of. He will one day redeem it as the Goel. Okay, and so again... Let me just read to you this John Thompson. The claim is that this is the same type of scroll that really John is talking about. It serves as a title deed. John Thompson, the New American Commentary of the Old Testament, I'm sorry, New International Commentary in the Old Testament, says, quote, the contract was written out on papyrus and when, then was folded over several times, tied and sealed. This was the closed official copy. An unsealed copy was attached to its consul, for consultation, he says, a similar practice was followed in Mesopotamia. So I want you to see that it's all over the place that they use this. Where the official contract written on clay was enclosed in a clay envelope bearing the same contract. And the seal impressions, think of the seven seals, were on the cylinder seals. He says, the same practice obtained in Palestine in the 4th century B.C. He says, similar deeds have been discovered in the Judean desert, unquote. So these were all over. In fact, in the Roman Empire, if you lived during John's day, you would know that title deeds had seven seals on them. Very, very common indeed. Um, think about this, Revelation eleven fifteen. jot that verse down. Revelation eleven fifteen is all about Christ coming into his inheritance and all of the saints reigning with him. So right away, we should be thinking of this idea of inheritance and the deed. So I'm just laying out evidence why we should understand this scroll is not only a book of wrath, but also like a title deed. Okay? Think about it in the immediate context. The immediate context is king. Revelation 4.11, we just saw in the previous verse that God's right to rule, all power was given to him. Why? Because he was the creator of all things. And so wouldn't it be natural then to think, now again, if you're living in that society, and you see a seven seals scrolled and immediately you think of a title deed, how fitting is that in light of the fact that God has been shown to be the one who is the rightful rule of all things in the immediate context? 
So again, I think that it really is true to say that the sealed book represents not only God's wrath, but again, after it's expended, it's a title deed for all of the earth. All right, now, let me show you one other thing. Think about God's plan of wrath and this idea. Oh, yeah, Cindy. Um, the, the entire book of Ruth is an example of the land being redeemed. The kinsman redeemer. By the kinsman exactly. redeemer. Yep. Boaz ends up redeeming Ruth and by extension Naomi. Yep. And then, yes, and then the uh, son who was born from Boaz and Naomi ends up being in the lineage of David and obviously the Messiah. So very poignant. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So yeah, I don't, I, see, here's what I want you to think about. This idea of God pouring his wrath out isn't mutually exclusive with this idea of a title deed. Think about in Genesis 3, man gives dominion, in a sense, to mankind. So God gives dominion to mankind, and what do they do? They try to usurp his authority, just like Satan did. Turn your Bible to Luke 20, verse 14. Luke 20, verse 14. I want you to see this parable. It's only one section of the parable. But this is the parable of the vine dressers. And Jesus here likens himself to the son who's the heir of the vineyard. And the owner of the vineyard is, of course, God the Father. And so when he sends all the servants, the prophets, the vine dressers kill off the prophets. And they're trying to usurp the vineyard's owner. Well, finally, the vineyard's owner sends his son, who's Christ. And the vine dressers kill him and say, let us take possession. That's what we see here in Luke 20, 14. Jesus says, but when the vine growers saw him, he's referring to himself, really. He says, they reasoned with one another, saying, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. Okay, that is what Satan is trying to do through mankind. Let the inheritance be ours instead of God's. Now, at the end of the day, in the context, God is particularly angry there with the religious leaders of Israel. But in the book of Revelation, this anger is at a cosmic level. It's with the whole world. Everyone is trying to usurp God's authority in his right to rule. All right? Uh, think about this. God's right to rule over all the earth is seen all over the place. Exodus 19.5, it says, now, when, now then, if you will indeed obey my voice, the Lord says, and keep my covenant... Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Okay, God owns it all. All the earth is his. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all that it contains, the world and those who dwell on it. David said this, 1 Chronicles 29, 11, giving praise to God. He says, yours, Yahweh, is the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Yahweh, and you are exalted as head above all. So, God's right then to rule was given in Genesis to whom? To mankind. And so you and I were to be, as made in the image of God, those who represented God's rule on earth. Okay, and we see this dominion mandate given in Genesis 1.28. I want you to see this connection. We're given this dominion over the planet. We usurp God's authority because of sin. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, you and I were given dominion. Now, let me say this. That dominion mandate does not extend to other men. 
Bob wrote a CIC article where you have reconstructionists. These are dominionists, post-millennialists, who try to claim that our dominion mandate is to Christianize the world through force, basically, and take over the governments and have the Mosaic law reign from different governmental institutions. Notice the dominion mandate is not over other men. It's over the, the, uh, everything else that moves over the, the earth. But it's not mankind. So what happens then is Adam and Eve usurp this. They want to be like God. They're not content with what God has given them. Just like the vine dressers, right, in Luke 20 that we just read about. They said, hey, let's kill the heir and the inheritance is ours. That's the root and the heart of sin. Let's kill off the air. Let's get rid of this Jesus. Why did he die on the cross? Let's get rid of the air. And the inheritance is ours. Right? Isaiah 24, 5 through 6, very interesting passage. God says the earth mourns and withers. This is culmination of judgment. He says the world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, broke the everlasting covenant. Now, what everlasting covenant is being referred to there? The context plus the language brings us back to the Noahic covenant, the covenant that God made with Noah to be fruitful and to multiply, to have dominion that God had given us. But we broke it because we had broken in every generation the laws of God. And so this is an indictment against all of creation, all of, all of mankind, I should say, in creation. It's not just limited to those in Israel. So my point is, is that you and I have taken God's dominion and we've distorted it. And so no longer are we his representatives. We've been aligned as usurpers. And then when we trust in Christ, we're brought out of that. And now we're going to reign with him. Okay. So with that being said, I want you to see that Satan is ultimately the source of this. Notice Luke 4, 5 through 6. This is when, of course, he's tempting Jesus. Notice it says, And he led him, that's Jesus, up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Now, notice the phrase, for it has been handed over to me. That's a divine passive. God had handed over, as it were, dominion temporarily to Satan, who is known in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 as what? The God of this age, the God of this world. Yep. Think about Jesus says, though, this is going to be the result of the cross. John 12, 31, he says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That's going to be the result of the cross. And so in the book of Revelation, Satan is thrown down to the earth. You have the great tribulation. Then he's thrown into the abyss. Then he's released to deceive the nations, and then he's thrown into the lake of fire. So after the cross, Satan just goes down, 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 and down. After the cross, Jesus just goes up, up, and up. He's buried with the wealthy, form of exaltation. It doesn't end there, does it? Prophesied by Isaiah 53, 9, Jesus is buried with the wealthy, exaltation. But then he's raised from the dead. The Holy One would not see decay, Psalm 1610. Then he ascends on high, seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, and he's going to come and he's going to reign over all things. So at the cross, Jesus goes up, up, and up. Satan just goes down, down, and down. That's the picture. 
Okay, let me just show you one more passage. Revelation 12, 9. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. That will happen in the eschatological age. Positionally, it is true now because of the cross. And Bob's going to be teaching us about that in Colossians 2.15. Now, last slide I want to share with you. I want to share with you the concept of the Goel, the concept of the kinsman redeemer. In Leviticus 25, God said that his land could never, never be sold permanently. And so he set up this system whereby if a relative, an Israelite, lost their land, it was the duty, the responsibility, and the privilege of the nearest kinsman called a kinsman redeemer, a goel, to purchase that land so that the land would not fall out of the lineage of the family and therefore Israel. And so he says in Leviticus 25, 23, the land moreover shall not be sold permanently for the land is mine for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. In a real sense, the book of Revelation sees the same concept on a cosmic level. So Jesus then on a cosmic level is the goel. He's the kinsman redeemer. The whole earth is going to be redeemed. So what's interesting is when you look at the criteria of the kinsman redeemer, there's three qualities or qualifications. Number one, they had to be related. Okay, think about it. Jesus became a man. Paul labors this. He's our second Adam. He's related to us, isn't he? Who was tempted in all ways that you and I are yet without sin. He had to have the ability to pay the debt. Who alone had the ability to pay the debt and did so on the cross? Jesus did, right? Truly man, truly God. You can see that in the first two criteria. But he's also, because he's God, he's all-powerful. And the third criteria that a kinsman redeemer had to have is they had to have the ability to evict the usurpers. Not only did they have to be related, and not only did they have to have the ability to pay the debt, but they had to have the power, the dunamis, to evict the usurper. Now, this is the last passage I'm going to leave you with. Turn your Bibles to Revelation 5, 9 through 10. This is what you're going to be looking at the next time we're in the book of Revelation together. Revelation 5, 9 through 10. Look at this new song that they sing of Jesus. Jesus alone is worthy of opening this sealed scroll. It says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God. Here's the redemption. Purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Jesus is the great Goel. And he is the one that fulfills all of these criteria to open the title deed, the wrath, and to break all of creation away from the usurper and bring it back to God. That's what you and I are going to witness and the significance, I think, of Revelation chapter 5. Okay? So with that, I'm sorry I went over time. Um, I'll be quiet. Do we have any questions? Who sang the new song in heaven? Revelation 5, 9. Yep, those would be our 24 elders. Okay. Yep. That's right. Yeah, okay. All right, so, oh, I'm sorry, Dana's got one. Dana's... Here's another one for, for Bob to look up in the Greek. Oh. Um, re- regarding the cum, urkami, uh, I was wondering what, what it says in uh, Revelation 22, 
17, where it says the spirit and the bride say come. Oh, I wondered yeah. if that was also an Urkamai. I bet it is, yeah. That's probably is Urkamai. And then the, the other question I had for you was, yeah. uh, who, who did you, what was the name of the man who wrote the commentary on Isaiah? It was J. Alec something. Oh, yeah. Um, J. Alec Motyer. Uh, J is like a, I don't know what it actually is because it's just on the cover, it's just the letter yeah, J. Yeah, yeah. Well, so not like J-A-Y. What's the last name? Motyer? Motyer, M-O-T-E-Y-R. No, M-O-T-Y-E-R. Okay. Yeah, that's it. It is Urkomai. Good catch. Yeah, thank you, Dana. And by the way, Wednesday night, Dana's going to be handling Mormons. Uh, Mormons and how to witness to a Mormon. I knew so. a lot about Mormons, but I've learned a lot more about Mormons in, in preparing for this. Yeah. And it's much, much worse than I thought. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's a good, good trailer or a good I, uh, I, segue. I knew they weren't Christian, but right. I didn't realize in how many ways. Okay. <laughs> so come Wednesday night and hear how unchristian they are. Um, thank you. Heavenly Father, I'll just pray as you go. Don't worry. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for our time together. We thank you for these great truths. We thank you for sending your go well and all all the blessings that he has through faith in him. We thank you in this in Jesus' name. Amen.